This is Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordained him to be to- ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have mercy on me, and I will pay you. But he refused. And then he went and threw him into prison until he would repay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You all can have a seat. Hi, everybody. It's really great to see you and... Good to be with you um, at 11 a.m. We do not have the lights off because we're feeling particularly moody today. It's just because we don't know what's going on with the fuse or something. So they're not working, so we're a little bit um, in the dark, which means uh, we're going to have to work a little um, extra this morning to make sure that we don't take um, our afternoon nap early for all of you. This isn't the place, and I suspect, um, I don't know, I feel excited about what the Lord might um, have to say to us uh, today. Uh, this, it seems to be a kind of like ongoing theme for us the last number of weeks. The Lord just kind of keeps putting his finger on this um, issue of forgiveness and uh, reconciliation in our own hearts. And of course, we don't choose our sermon texts every week. They come to us by way of the lectionary. So I don't get to wake up and choose what I'm preaching um, every Sunday. And um, that means neither of us gets to choose what we talk about at church. The Bible comes to me in the same way it comes to you. And the Holy Spirit and his conviction comes to me in the same way it comes to you. And so um, part of that is awesome because by design, what that means is that, uh, you know, I don't get to pick and choose which means I can't avoid the parts of the Bible that I might be, you know, tempted to avoid or um, especially on a day when I might especially want to avoid them and not talk about forgiveness or unforgiveness or whatever, you know, we get to be confronted with it. And so I've been really curious, like, what is it, Lord? What is the connection between the kingdom of heaven, which we've been talking about, Jesus taught so much about, was like constantly, actually, even whether he was teaching about it or um, whether he was doing it, He just, you know, you can't get away from it. It was just always the kingdom of heaven again, the kingdom of heaven again, the kingdom of heaven again. And this connection between forgiveness and what's going on inside our own hearts, apparently they're related in some really important and profound way. 
When we think about the kingdom of heaven, we've talked about in weeks past, and this is the thing I would really love to, live, to like leave with you that you could hold in your mind because it's hard to remember everything, but something that you could really hold on to and take with you from these last few weeks is this, that when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're really talking about the like unhindered activity of God in your own life and heart and in the world around us. So like the spaces where God has the ability, the freedom really, because of course he has the power but he has also limited himself, uh, made the choice to, so that we also have agency. We also have will, for better or for worse. And so there are places in our own hearts and in the world around us where God just refuses to sort of override whatever's happening here, at least at times. And so where God's unhindered, where he can act what, the way he wants to act and do what he wants to do, um, that's how we understand and know the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus meant. Like, it's here. The rule and reign of God has come. He wants to, like, do things in the world and in your own life if you would open yourself up to him, if you'd receive that. What might that look like? What might that be? So whatever that is, the kingdom of heaven, there's a relationship between God being able to do that or God doing that through you and then the places where we might have, I don't know, unchecked sin, or bitterness, or anger, or a lack of forgiveness at work in our own heart. That apparently there's an impediment there. This is what we talked about last time. God can't spend the way that he wants to spend. He can't do the things that he wants to do. And so Jesus is like almost relentless in his focus on this. He keeps coming back to it to be like, let's deal with unforgiveness. No, again, make sure. How are our hearts? Are we good? Are we at peace? Because God has come to give you a really good gift to do a lot in you and through you. And if you're receiving that but not extending it out, then the kingdom of heaven cannot be in you what it's meant to be. It do what it's meant to do. So here again, put our fingers. Jesus last week was giving us really practical advice on what to do when we have conflict. We talked about that last time. When Christians have conflict with one another, what are we meant to do to resolve it? And he was really practical in a way that I very much appreciate. Um, here's what you do. Follow these steps. Peter has heard all of this. Um, and I love to imagine him there listening because what he chooses to follow it up, he chooses to follow it up with a question. Um, he hears Jesus give all these instructions about how to resolve conflict. And then Peter says, yes, but how exactly how many times should we forgive somebody? Like seven, seven feels right, right? Seven's a good number. It's a perfect, good Bible number. It's a good, perfect, total, round number. We just like seven times, and that should be good. Well, after that, then no more forgiving. No more going through all the things. And Jesus says in response, of course, not seven, 77, which is, of course, not the number that Jesus means to give. He's not saying after seven, like 78 times, it's over. What he's really saying instead is, what we're talking about number of times, Peter. We're talking about something else. That to be a person who is marked by forgiveness is to be a certain kind of person. We're pointing at something deeper than the number itself or the times. We're pointing at a reality, a transformed life and heart that would become a person of forgiveness, not somebody who's just like tallying the times. That's one kind of person. You want to become a 77 person. A person for whom, like, forgiveness is your default. It's your way in the world. This, I think, is actually the most important thing. There's a lot here to be said about forgiveness, and we'll talk about that. But I want to make sure that we don't miss what Jesus is saying about the rule-following thing. 
that our temptation, our tendency actually is towards like box checking and keeping rules. And Jesus knows this about us, particularly those of us who are like already good on God stuff. Like we're kind of here for it. We're ready to be with God and do God. We're down. And those of us who feel that way have apparently a certain tendency towards keeping rules. And Jesus wants to deal with the rule following so that he can get into what's actually going on. And I don't know that this is true for you, but I grew up in a tradition as a, as a young person growing up in the church um, that was very focused on the rule keeping. Um, and I don't even say that it was like uh, not necessarily a bad thing, actually, because there are important rules that like need to be kept. You know, that is, it was good for me. God knows I needed a rule or two in my life and don't want to imagine what I would have been or who I would have become necessarily without them. But we were really focused on the behavior management part of things. You know what I mean? These are the things you don't do. These are the things you do. So like I would have said to you, for example, that I know that it is important to say that I'm sorry. And I know that it is important that if someone says that they are sorry, that I have to say it is okay to forgive them. And then you can sort of like check the box. I said, I'm sorry. Saying I'm sorry, by the way, and asking for forgiveness, different things. Yes? A person can say that they are sorry and not really be asking for forgiveness. Check the box, though. I did it. Or I knew, for example, that I wasn't allowed to get drunk, wasn't allowed to sleep with my boyfriend. I did have to go to church. I knew these things, the rules that I had to keep. Why, though? And what was really going on? Like, what might be the motivation? Why does any of that stuff really actually matter? Why did Jesus talk so much about forgiveness? Why wouldn't a person sleep with their boyfriend before they get married? None of those, those things felt less clear anyway. Is it just so that we can be good because God is good. And maybe that's it. Maybe the call for you is just to be good in the way that God is good. And I don't think that that's wrong. It's just that, y'all, there's just more going, more going on than that. That actually the, the gospel, this good news, this kingdom of heaven thing that Jesus came to get us all in on is about more than you just saying you're sorry or checking the boxes. Jesus wants you to have a transformed life. And you can keep the rules without the Holy Spirit. You cannot, keep, you cannot be a transformed person or new creation without him. You can keep the rules all your life or not keep them. Actually, keeping them or not keeping them doesn't require God. Yeah, either way, you don't need him for that. But to be a new creation, to see the kingdom of heaven at work in my life, to be a person for whom forgiveness becomes an instinct, not just a rule, that is something altogether different. Now we're talking about a qualitative difference. It's something that's happened to me or is happening to me. And that's the stuff that Jesus was interested in. For example, in Matthew 5, when Jesus gave his so-called Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's, we oftentimes, and I don't, I think I just did this uh, maybe implicitly or instinctively, not because necessarily anybody told me to. I just assumed that when Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that what he was doing was giving me like 
an instruction. In order to be blessed, I must be poor in spirit. That must be what Jesus means. Or in order to be blessed, I must be meek. Or in order to be blessed, I must be forgiving. And so that's really helpful to somebody like me because I'm a three and I like rules. I don't like rules so much. I like a standard. Do you know what I mean? I like to know what's required of me and how to achieve it. And so then I can do that thing that's being required of me. It took me a long time to realize that actually Jesus isn't giving us instructions at all. That when he gave his so-called Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wasn't giving you a to-do list. He wasn't saying, actually, if you'll do these things, then you will be blessed, which is so natural and native to us. And in case you don't believe me, I'm going to quote from somebody smarter than me. This is Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy. He writes about this at length. And this is a quote from his book. If you haven't read it, you really should. Incredible. He says this, The Beatitudes in particular are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. They single out cases that provide proof that in Him, the rule of God, in Him, Jesus, the rule of God, the kingdom of heaven, is available in life circumstances that are beyond all hope. In other words, even if you are poor in spirit, meaning you have nothing to offer God or anyone else, even if you are, you are blessed in the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't matter, actually. Even if you are somebody, and the greatest strength that you have is your meekness, because you can't show off because you don't have anything to brag about. Even if you are that kind of person, you are someone on whom and through whom the kingdom of God has come. God wants to work through you. Because in the world, in the ways of the world, we can brag about our ability to keep lists, having done the right thing. That's a kind of power. If I can be a good person and do all the right things, if I can be right, even if I don't have money or if I'm not rich, but I can be right, then that is a kind of power. It's a righteous power, even better. And what Jesus is saying is no. Let's move away from worrying about being right or how to be right. Let's move away from making sure we have checked all the right boxes. Let's move away from exercising power in the way that the world does. Because for Peter, the question, how many times, Lord, just tell me how many times so that I can do it the right way and then I can be free. And that's what Jesus is saying. is like, ah, oh, but see, that's the thing. Being right and knowing that you're right isn't the best freedom. And actually, if it's come at the expense of you having loved your brother or sister or having given forgiveness, then it's no freedom at all. It's a trap. And it is a trap. It's the reason Jesus tells the story he tells. So he tells a story about a king who forgives someone a massive debt, an impossibly huge debt. And then that person goes and meets somebody who owes them something. And rather than extending mercy in the way that they had received mercy, they say, no, you owe me the money, pay me. And since you can't pay me, I'm locking you up. Hypocrisy, yes. Demand payment, even though mercy was extended to them. The king comes back, hears that this has happened, and says to that servant, hmm, I extended mercy to you? 
but you were unwilling to extend it to somebody who owed you far less? And then in the story, this person is handed over to be tortured. And the reason that I think that's so brilliant is because of the reality that it's describing. Jesus is trying to get us to hear. He's being provocative on purpose. Basically, he's saying when unforgiveness or a lack of mercy operates in your own heart, it is a form of torture. It is like its own kind of prison. Do any of you in this room happen to know what it feels like to be bound by anger? No? Just me. I'm the only one. To be so angry about something or at someone that it keeps you from being able to do the things that you want to do, to go the places you want to go. Have you ever been afraid of who you might run into in town? Have you ever had to come to church and hope that you wouldn't see that person or, God forbid, have to sit next to them or receive communion from them? And what that feels like to live that way. It's going to erode and corrode the deepest and best parts of you, is what Jesus is saying. It is a way for an enemy to have authority over parts of your own life and heart where God is meant to rule and reign, where he's meant to bring his peace, because you're meant for freedom. You're meant to be able to just go into rooms and sit with anybody and be okay. And if you have a situation in your life where you know that's not true for you, Or if I ran into that person or had to sit with them, I don't know that I could do it. Then the question to ask ourselves is, is Jesus asking me to consider why? Is there something there that God would really like to do? Is there a place where he could exercise authority in my life in a way that he has not yet if I trusted him? Because here's what I will tell you. And I've said this before, and the reason I can say it so freely is because I know it to be true. Whatever we're holding on to, the righteous indignation or the feeling of having been wronged and it's on the other person to make it right, all of that is not worth it, y'all. It's not worth what you have in Jesus. It's not. And, you know, I, as early as this morning, I get to sit with the Lord and say, It's just not worth it. Whatever it's going to cost me and you isn't worth it. Being right isn't better than being with you. It's just not. Having them acknowledge how right I am or how wrong they were, not worth it. I'd rather be with you. I'd rather have that peace in my life. I'd rather have the kingdom of heaven in my life and at work in me and through me. I'd rather be free. And so that's the question we get to ask ourselves when we're confronted with texts like this is, like, am I, though? Because that's what he's after. It really is about your freedom. It's not about just trying to get you to do the right thing. It's about what God wants to do in the world. So if I could go back to my 15-year-old self, for example, and I could have a conversation with her about, oh, I don't know, why not sleep with your boyfriend? 
And in case this applies to any of you, the church has something better to say about abstinence, admittedly, than we have done. But hear me. And now with someone who has been married almost 20 years, I would go back to my 15-year-old self and say, the reason that you need to practice saying no now is because if you don't practice saying no now for the sake of this relationship, you won't know how to do it later. And you are going to need to practice good boundaries for the rest of your married life. And God is trying to give you an opportunity to learn from him now when it's less costly. Let him teach you how to say no to your own desires for the sake of something bigger than yourself. Because you're going to need to do that for the rest of your married life. I can place a limit on my own desires for the sake of something bigger than me. I can learn to just say no for the sake of something bigger than me. Help me, God. Teach me how. And nobody told me that. And I wish they would have. Jesus is a good teacher. And his ways are good. And the life that he's called us to is better than the alternative. And the good news is that you get to opt into that anytime you choose. So long as we're willing to say, I forgive you. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Help me, God. That's it. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to have tons of money. You don't have to own a company. All the things that make power come in the world, none of that stuff matters when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. It's a level playing field. We all have the capacity to forgive. We all have the capacity to receive forgiveness. That's what Jesus is saying. That's good news. So we get to practice just taking him at his word. We come here, we hear what he has to say. And here's the thing. If you are in a place where you're like, I actually, in order to, to do that, to believe that, I need to know that God is good. You're right. You do. Otherwise, it's really hard to operate out of that. The reason that we read Genesis 50, I think, is because Joseph's brothers, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, Joseph's brothers dug a pit, by the way, and they threw him into it and tried to sell him into slavery. Well, they didn't try, they did, in fact, sold him into slavery. That's the story. And then they get reunited in the scene that we read in Genesis 50, and the brothers are there with Joseph, and they rightly expect that Joseph is now going to have his turn at punishing them. And if it was me or probably any of you, you would be plotting how big the pit would be that would fit all of them in it. But Joseph has been to hell and back. He's been saved by the grace of God. And so when he meets his brothers, and they've been plotting, by the way, on how to coerce him to forgive them. Tell him before dad died, he made us promise that Joseph would tell us that we were forgiven. Tell him that our dead dad said so. He had to forgive us. That's our plan. And they go in and that's what they tell him. Dad, before he died, he asked you to forgive us. Manipulation. 
as an instinct. And if I was Joseph, I would have looked at them and thought, nothing's changed. You're as manipulative and as plotting now as you've ever been. And he would have been right. But for some reason, because of what he had known of God and how he had experienced God, that's not what he felt. The text tells us he wept when he saw his brothers. The hope of being reunited to them, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of having family, the goodness of God that he'd experienced in his life just wasn't worth punishing them. Vengeance wasn't an instinct because of how he had been changed. And so he cries, and when they see him cry, they confess. We're slaves. We don't deserve. Whatever you decide to do is what we deserve. And then truth can come and healing can come. Powerful stuff, y'all. That is available to you, is what I'm saying. That kind of grace, that kind of forgiveness, it is available to you if you choose to receive it and then live into it. So we're going to pray now through the prayers of the people. But before we do and move into the liturgy, we're just going to take space to be still, to deal with what we need to deal with before God. And then we'll pray for the church and for the world. Come Holy Spirit.